Hello and welcome to Story of the Book, where middle grade YA and picture book authors tell the stories of their books from beginning to end. I'm Hayley Chewins, I write books about magical girls with secrets. And I'm Lindsay Eager, I write books about growing up in this weird, wondrous world. And we're so very happy to have you here. Let's get started. On today's episode of Story of the Book, we're going to be talking to R.M. Romero. R.M. Romero is a Jewish Latina and author of fairy tales for children and adults. She lives in Miami Beach with her cat, Henry VIII, and spends her summers helping to maintain Jewish cemeteries in Poland. Ms. Romero is a graduate of the University of Southern Maine's Stone Coast MFA program. Her thesis and debut middle grade novel, The Dollmaker of Krakow, became an international bestseller. It was nominated for the Kilip Carnegie Award, received the silver medal in the Florida State Book Awards, and was named a Sidney Taylor Notable Book by the Association of Jewish Libraries, among other accolades. Her YA debut, The Ghosts of Rose Hill, will be released by Peachtree Teen on May 3rd, 2022. I've known Rachel for a while now, and we've swapped uh, manuscripts with each other, and um, I just, every time I read anything she's written, I'm so blown away by how beautiful it is and how strange and how eerie and how original and wonderful it is so I'm a huge fan of her work and I'm a huge fan of her the way that she exists in the world the way that she takes care of cats (laughs) stray cats and um, cares about about people who have been who are downtrodden and I just think she's wonderful so I hope you enjoy this conversation with her Rachel, thank you so much for coming to Story of the Book and chatting to us about your beautiful book, The Dollmaker of Krakow, today. It's so, so wonderful to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Yay! Okay, so um, yeah, would you mind giving us just a quick pitch for Dollmaker of Krakow before we start talking about it? Yes. The Dollmaker of Krakow is the story of Carolina, a living doll who flees from her own country, the land of the dolls, after it's invaded by a country of evil rats. And a kind wind carries her to the city of Krakow, Poland, in the summer of 1939, where she's brought to life by a man known locally as the Dollmaker, a magician and toy maker who has a toy shop in the Reniglauni, which is the main square of Krakow. Very shortly afterward, she and the dollmaker befriend a local Jewish family. Unfortunately, from there, World War II begins and Carolina and the dollmaker must try to save their Jewish friends uh, from the Nazi invasion. Thank you. That was such a perfect pitch also, can I just say. (laughs) Wonderful. (laughs) Mine are normally so bad and rambly. Anyway, yeah. Um, okay, so where we normally like to start is where did you get the idea for this book? And I know, Rachel, that you have kind of a personal connection with the subject matter of the book, a personal connection with Poland, too. So, yeah, I'd love to hear about how you got the idea for Dolmaker of Krakow and how it kind of developed into you wanting to draft it as a as a middle grade manuscript. So when I was barely 18 years old, I decided that I wanted to go to Poland and I, blo- I bought a plane ticket, and despite knowing about five words of Polish, and this was in 2005 when 
uh, not a lot of Poles spoke English, honestly. I flew there and I spent about a week in the city of Krakow and I was just absolutely enchanted by it because it was a city that was full of stories. There were stories about the pigeons in the main square who were supposedly knights that had been turned into pigeons by an evil witch. So everyone oh. is really nice to the pigeons because- I love that. That's yeah. so wonderful. Such a great story. Uh, the, the royal castle that's there is supposedly built on top of the lair of a dragon. Mm -hmm. um, there's just a little bit of folklore around every corner. So I found that to be absolutely fascinating. And then I went to Auschwitz-Birkenau, the concentration camp for several days. It's about, about an hour and a half outside of Krakow. And I, it took me a really long time to process that experience. I always thought I'm probably going to end up writing about this, but it took almost 10 years for me to be able to get there. And it was on a very long and winding road because when I started The Dollmaker of Krakow, I had no idea that was what the story was about, that it was going to take place during World War II, that it was going to center around the Holocaust. When I was in my MFA program and I was in a low residency program, one night I went out to eat at a fall place because I was very tired of eating in the dormitories, eating questionable iceberg lettuce every single night. So <laughs> I went out and I brought a notebook with me and I started writing this little scene where this doll comes to life in a toy shop. And the characters really intrigued me. I very quickly found out, oh, this doll is fleeing from this conflict in her home. This doll maker character is very interesting. He's a World War I veteran. And originally I had it set in Paris, France because Paris seems like such a magical city. But I've been to Paris and I had no real emotional connection to it. I was like, oh, this is nice, but it didn't spark my imagination. So I decided, all right, I'm going to move it to Krakow because I still, almost 10 years later then, had very vivid memories of that city. And then I realized from the aesthetics and whatnot that, oh, this takes place in the late 1930s. Mm -hmm. Oh, this takes place in 1939. Oh, mm -hmm. I know what the story is about. Yeah. And I paused there and I thought, I don't know if I can write this. I don't know if I can go into that darkness because I had never really been able to fully wrap my mind around what I, I had seen as a teenager in Auschwitz. It was always lurking in the back of my brain, but I just couldn't really engage with it. I had done a ton of reading. I still do a ton of reading, but um, it was just such a heavy subject matter. But I decided to pursue the story to the end and I drafted it for NaNoWriMo in 2014. Um, and it was a, an unusual drafting experience because I was actually temper, I was renting the apartment that I live in now. Um, and I was borrowing my neighbor's Wi-Fi with her permission, but the only place I could get the Wi-Fi was in the bathroom. So the entire book, first draft of the book was me sitting in a lawn chair in my bathroom, writing this on Google Docs, trying to get a Wi-Fi signal. And after oh, wow. I finished this section, I would watch an episode of Over the Garden Wall, which is oh. a wonderful cartoon network miniseries that has elements of fairy tales and folklore and if you like any of those things I can't recommend it enough so I feel like tonally that probably influenced the book oh totally I've never heard that. of that do you like that show too Lindsay I do and my girls absolutely love it and I can totally oh. see the influence that's like tonally yes I can totally see yeah. that they are cousins very so much cool. so I'm gonna check that out Yes, you, you would love it, Haley. Yes, you'll like it a lot. <laughs> it's wonderful. Yay. Can I butt in and ask a follow-up yeah. question? Um, yeah. I am just wondering, 
if you might, if you wouldn't mind talking about um, other sort of Holocaust focused, World War II focused um, books and stories and media, um, there's so many, and there's so many angles and different directions that you could take. What made you, like, how did you decide where your version or not, not your version, where your particular story would fit in with this huge thing that happened? And are there any other Holocaust media that sticks out to you as particularly influential or, or favorites or ones that everybody should partake of? So I think I came at it from the angle I did because uh, my father's side of the family is Cuban. And one of the things about a lot of Latinx cultures is that we engage with trauma um, through magical realism, through these, through folklore, through kind of these stories that seem impossible yet happen. They are full of, you know, my own family's history is full of, you know, miraculous flights for life and disappearances and things like that. So I think that fantasy can offer us a really good entrance into these really dark experiences and actually show us the truth in ways that cold hard facts can't. They get at the emotional experience of that. Mm -hmm. So I think that's why. Another reason I chose to tell it from the point of view of a doll is if you go to the Auschwitz-Birkenau concentration camp and now the exhibit that is um, touring the United States, I'm actually going to see it with a friend later this month in Kansas City. One of the things that's there are all these possessions that people brought thinking that they were just going to be relocated. Mm -hmm. So there are things yeah. like children's toys. So I thought, mm -hmm. you know, that always mm -hmm. stuck with me. You know, what did these objects see? What was kind of the life of these various objects? Yeah. Wow. And as for kind of, there's a lot of Holocaust media and a lot of it is not particularly good you know yeah the boy mm -hmm. in the striped pajamas is very very popular it's also extremely problematic and I would not mm -hmm. recommend it as a as a teaching tool as right. um, a reflection of the truth you know there are certain uh, very good ones the devil's arithmetic by Jane Yolen and Briar Rose always stick mm -hmm. out as holocaust fiction that's written by a Jewish author and comes at um, this historical event from a Jewish perspective there's yeah. also of course Schindler's List, um, which even though it does focus on a, a righteous Gentile, I think is still a really worthy both book and uh, movie mm -hmm. because I, I feel like it doesn't gloss over the reality of these situations. There's also yeah. a very difficult movie for adults called The Gray Zone, which is, takes place in Auschwitz-Birkenau in 1944 and is the story of the Jewish men who are actually made to burn the bodies of the people who had been gassed. And uh, it's based off of a memoir of a, a doctor who is a Jewish doctor who was forced to work at the camp. And mm -hmm. that's, um, that's a story that doesn't get told very often, but it does discuss the, the moral quandaries of what do you do in that situation? What should you, should you prioritize your survival? Should you prioritize your morals? So that mm -hmm. ends, uh, that's a different lens. There's also, um, Mischling by Affinity Corner. It's another, um, it's another adult novel that has some elements of magical realism in it. And it is the story of these two twin Hungarian girls who are deported to Auschwitz-Birkenau in the summer of 1944, their children. And they become the victims of medical experimentation. But it's also really about their intense 
love and bond for one another. And that's also written by an author of Jewish heritage. So I would recommend all of those stories. Also um, the memoirs of people who actually went through this are invaluable because this is firsthand experiences. Um, there's a Netflix documentary uh, called The Last Days that just came out um, that is about the final days of the Holocaust in Hungary. So I'd also recommend that. I'm going to sneak in another follow-up question just because as you were <clears throat> listing off a lot of these books, one thing that I was thinking and, and movies, one thing I was thinking about is the struggle that must be there when you're writing about um, this time period and, and people, the people who went through this uh, to balance out the real like tragedy and horror of this with the fact that they were also people and there was therefore moments of beauty and and mm. brevity almost um in their lives and you do such a good job with this in your book of of and i think the lens of the doll helps tremendously to just bring i don't know if lightness is the right word but just to make sure it's not all like an issues book do you know mm -hmm. what I mean? i'm doing quotes um <clears throat> to make sure it's not just a a teaching book about the Holocaust. It's a real story and there's other elements mm. besides darkness. So thoughts? I don't know where my question is, mm. but just like, how do you, how do you balance such a dark and despairing material by still, and, and still add, still make it a story that's enjoyable to read um, while not downplaying the tragedy? I also want to add to that to say this is obviously a book for children too. Yeah. So that adds another layer to it because um, of course, if you're writing a book for adults, you also would want to have, you know, a, a sense of people's lives being full and a, a full sense of their humanity, which yeah, includes joy, includes wonder and magic and all of that, but especially when you're writing about the Holocaust for children. And look, I, I'm one of those people who really believes that we should tell children the truth about things that happened in our history. And I know that in your author's note, you talk about, um, about how important it is to remember that the Holocaust happened and to remember the horrors of it so that it doesn't happen again, especially in our current climate. So yeah, I think that's really important to talk to children about the horror, but then also, and I get, I, I agree with Lindsay, I think you do such a beautiful job of balancing the light and the darkness. And I'd love to hear about how you went about doing that. Thank you. I would actually give most of the credit to the characters for that. I'm very much someone who follows her characters uh, wherever they take me through this labyrinth of events. And, you know, Carolina was a really wonderful way to do that because mm -hmm. she is brand new to the human world and she sees these moments of, of beauty, of joy. She really appreciates those. And she is mm -hmm. able to see these tiny flickers of light in this darkness. There's also the character of Reina, who is the young girl, who is also, because she is so loved by all of the people in her life, is also able to cling to that light quite a bit. Um, it is a, yeah. a very fine line. There are some people who had an issue with this book and they mm -hmm. thought that how dare you bring magic into this? You're making light of these events. And I said, you know, this is the only way that I can talk about these events. I could not write a more straight historical fiction novel about this for that very reason. I would get too bogged down in the horror and 
um, it's not, it's not even my place to fully I delve into that. I am not a survivor. I don't even have survivors in my family. So sure. Um, that I think would be more disrespectful in some ways. Yeah. Mm. Would you talk about for a second? Um, let's like put on our craft writers hats for just a second. Um, so Carolina is a doll and she's the main character mm. that we sort of see everything through her eyes, as you were just barely mentioning. And that gives you as the writer, uh, this wonderful tool to sort of uh, have her notice things that maybe we, the readers, already recognize, um, but she can explain it to us in a way that lets us kind of, I don't know, like have that, like like recognize like, oh yeah, that is kind of strange that we do that. Or I, I took that for granted that we do this as humans. So would you talk about just like, be the writing professor for just a second and talk to us as other writers, like, what that kind of tool allows you to do and, and how to utilize it. And if there's any pitfalls or like what it frees you up to do in that way, because it's such a good tool and like a sneaky thing to do as a writer. I agree. And it's one of the tools that I end up using the most is to drop a character into a brand new situation into, you know, a world or a country or a scenario that they are kind of unprepared to deal with, but also are are sort of open to the experience. I don't write characters who, for example, see magic and spend the entire time denying it. They go, oh, okay, I guess this is happening. I guess I need to roll with whatever is currently occurring because I find it really frustrating when I'm reading a book or watching a movie and there's a lot of denial and how can this be happening? Um, Also, I just don't think I'd react that way, perhaps because I grew up with a lot of fantasy. You know, if I found a magical door, I'd be like, oh, all right. I found one. Yeah. yeah I feel like I would do that too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it does allow you to talk about the world without falling into the trap of, as you know, Bob, which is the code <laughs> of you know, exposition where a character who has been living in a society for their entire life is suddenly monologuing to another character who in a similar situation, <laughs> who is, you know, about how the society works. And it just comes off as, stiff and unnatural and people would never have these conversations and I always really want to go for dialogue that you can actually see occurring around you because that helps to bring the characters to life at the same time you don't want your character to seem overly naive and Mm. astounded by completely everything because that can also detract from the realism to become annoying and ridiculous (laughs) you know I didn't want Carolina to be questioning everything around her also just because that was not the story yeah. that I was trying mm. to tell. In your first draft, did you already have a sense of the land of the dolls was going to have this war? Like Carolina has her own war that she fled from um, with the rats. Um, and did you already know that you were going to have that? And then also like paralleled with World War II. And of course, I think I thought it was so clever because it's such a it's such a kind of clear way also of explaining to children what happens in in a period of war um and yeah I just thought it was such a it's such an evocative kind of obviously this little it's like kind of like a fairy tale the way that you put it across um and yeah so was that there from the beginning or was that something that developed over time that was actually there from the beginning even initially I knew that she was fleeing from some kind of conflict and then I Um, When I realized that this book was going to take place almost entirely during World War II, I really built up that parallel in the first draft. Mm. And in order to write The Land of the Dolls, I did 
default to fairy tales and also to particularly the Nutcracker. Yeah. Yes. And yeah. I did love the ballet as a child, but what I really loved was the original E.T.A. Hoffman story, The Nutcracker and the Mouse King, which is very weird. It's bonkers. It, it is yes. really bonkers. <laughs> as a child, I was obsessed with it. And then I was extremely obsessed with the only accurate adaptation of that story, which was a movie called The Nutcracker Prince, which mm -hmm. is still kind of has a lot of weird nightmare fuel in it. I rewatch it every year, despite not celebrating Christmas. <laughs> sure. So that ended up coming into play. And I did think that, you know, how do I show this to children who may have mm -hmm. not ever experienced the reality of a war? How do I show that Carolina is in a very particular position and so is the doll maker? And that's why she can relate so strongly to what is going on. Even if she can't save her homeland, she does realize she can have an impact on the human world yeah. dealing with the same problem. Yeah. And there's also, I, what I noticed that, cause obviously this is the second time that I read it and I love rereading books because I always notice things that I don't necessarily notice in the first time around. And what I noticed this time around was how much of an emphasis you place on the value of making something, the value of making art, how that could be something that really creates a sense of hope, a sense of beauty or joy, even in a really dark time, making art can be a light um, that kind of illuminates and also just keeps sadness at bay or helps. There was such a beautiful line about um, how Carolina, I think that it's right in the beginning when the doll maker discovers her and he wakes up and he has tears, he's, he's crying from a nightmare. And then he starts, he gets to work on the dollhouse and she, she can visibly see him feeling better, like his tears kind of stop. And she thinks to herself, you know, I, I also always, I always feel better if my hands are moving because obviously she's a seamstress and she's also a maker. She's an artist in her own right. So yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. Is that something that happened just unconsciously like, because that's something that you believe or was that something that you consciously decided to kind of highlight in revisions or, or put in your draft? That was something I decided to highlight in revisions. It was always an undertone because that is how I uh, deal with and, and process really heavy issues is yeah. I make visual art, I write poems, I write fiction. This is the, the way that, yeah, I kind of can make sense of it. There's a quote, I can't remember who says that anything can be born as long as you put it in a story, which mm -hmm. is very That's much how, yeah, how I deal with things is, I use whatever pain I'm going through as material. And the more I put it down on the paper in one form or another, uh, the less power it has over me. And mm -hmm. I think that there's a lot to be said about resistance as art, not necessarily that, oh, art is going to change the way that people um, feel. It's going to somehow make bigots not into bigots, but as an act of resistance of just keeping yourself intact, keeping um, your your heart in one piece as you go through a great struggle. Mm. Yeah. 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 I okay. think, yeah, it just, yeah, you go, Lindsay. I just wanted to say, I think the book, when I was reading it this time, I was just, I felt like, firstly, I know why we're friends because I think we have a very similar worldview. Um, but yeah, it just was so affirming to read um, 
you know, I, I sometimes go through periods when I think like, oh, does it matter? Like, does all of this matter that these random stories that I'm writing or these manuscripts that I'm trying to get right or like the poems or the little songs that I write um, in my living room, like, do they matter? And this book felt like it was saying to me, yes, 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 it matters, it matters, it matters. So thank you for that. You're welcome. It does matter. Mm-hmm. Well, I have one more question about sort of the story and the idea and the, the concepts, and then maybe we'll move into revision Yeah, as let's a do that. topic. Um, I wanted to ask maybe selfishly, because this is something that interests me too, but um, the idea of dolls, rats, doll houses, mm-hmm. miniatures is something that is so fascinating and like evocative to me um as a writer but also just as a person I don't know I I like kind of lose my shit when I see like miniature (laughs) things like little doll houses like I don't know there's something about yeah there's something about seeing the world reduced down to miniatures um yeah that's so like I want to I want to both have it to play God with it, but also wish that I could also shrink down to be little and be in a miniature <laughs> world. Um, like Alice in Wonderland and like the world of like little tiny fairies, like all of it is so, mm. I don't know what it is. It's so wonderful. And I wondered if you have that affinity as well. And what, like, what do you think it is that's so interesting about dolls in particular, like miniature, like little, little alive things that are in a big world? Mm. I did um, as, as a child a lot. Like I live in a very small place now, so I can't have a lot of miniatures. I don't have a lot of shelf space, but I had, you know, as a child growing up, I had doll houses with, you know, tiny saucepans and yes. tiny cups. And, you know, um, it was actually made out of a bookshelf that my parents built. It was just, you know, three level bookshelf. And there was little beds and when I was really little and still believed in such things my mother every night would slightly rearrange it so I would think I thought that the dolls had come to life and they were living this secret life and I found especially as a child that dolls were such a great medium for storytelling because I would try to get my friends to be involved in these really big elaborate pretend games that I just wanted to go on and on in these epic quests and they're like no, you <laughs> just want to play tag. And I was like, what? <laughs> so dolls allowed me to act out those stories. And I think that was my first kind of formative experience as a writer. And then I realized, oh my gosh, I could put these down on paper. And other people can read them. That's really exciting. Instead of just me in my bedroom acting this out. And I think that's yeah. part of the appeal. And also just the, the aesthetic of it. I think a lot of um, dollhouses want to have a very particular uh, vintage retro kind of feel to it that, you know, a Victorian house is not at all practical to live in. It is actually a pretty terrible place to live in, but a Victorian dollhouse is absolutely lovely. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Agreed. Haley, do you, I know you read and recommended the miniaturist to me. Oh, it's great. You probably like miniature things too. I love miniatures. I also like, I was obsessed with the Thumbelina movie when I was a kid. I just loved her so much. And I always, I remember being a kid and just um, like imagining like if this, like looking at objects that were normal size to me and imagining little people in them and being like, this would feel like this desk would feel like this huge expansive desert to them. I don't know if it's about like maybe in a way weirdly making space in your own mind. And I don't know. 
I don't know, like making ordinary things seem really, really magical. Yeah. Um, because if you were, if you were tiny, like, yeah. Uh, imagine what a piano would be like if you were tiny, if you could live inside a piano or something. I don't know. I just, I always thought about things like that when I was a kid and I continue to think about things like that. Yeah. Like the borrower. <laughs> yes. That's what yeah, I was just thinking of too. I love the borrowers. Yes. Yeah. Oh, I love it. Okay. Well, let's hear about the revision process for this book. Did you revise it after you drafted it, before you got an agent? And then obviously you probably revised it some after it was acquired. So what was hard? What was the hardest? What was like, tell us all about tearing this book apart and putting it together again. And can I also just add something quickly before you go? Um, Because I've read like I've been lucky enough to be your CP for some things and I've read some of your drafts and they always are so neat. And I want to ask you, do you draft neatly or do you draft like a mess like I do? (laughs) And when you did NaNoWriMo, like was that, was it a complete like discombobulated mess or was there a kind of sense of structure to it already? So my drafts are a hot mess. I actually tend to write out of order, which is, I would not actually recommend doing this to anyone, but it's the only way that I can write. I'm like, okay, I'm bored with this scene. I'm going to move on to this scene now and I'll come back to that. So I end up with kind of a Frankenstein draft, wow. first draft at the end, and then I print it all out. Mm-hmm. And then I go through it with a colored pen and I restructure it. And often I will actually outline after I have the first draft, I break it down chapter by chapter just so I can see the shape of the story, see any holes that need to be filled, mm-hmm. see any scenes that need to be enhanced or just straight up missing because I didn't want to write the scene at the time. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> relatable, yeah. <laughs> they're, I mean, they're literally incomprehensible in my first drafts. I would never give them to anyone. They're really okay. just myself telling the story as Terry Pratchett said about first drafts. Yes, yeah. And for me, the challenge of Dollmaker was actually deciding what genre was this, because I didn't write it with the intention of it being a middle grade novel. I just wrote it. And then I shared the first couple of chapters um, with um, a critique group at my MFA. We did, um, we had two of them per uh, low residency. And it was interesting because they got the first few chapters and my professor and all the other pupils in the group were saying, well, where is this going? And I described the ending and there was dead silence and people, Mm. but it was, and then my professor says, you have to finish this book. Yeah. So it was, Mm -hmm. I went from going, oh no, oh no, they, they hate it. They think that this is a really bad idea. And it was actually the stunned silence of oh okay you're going to go there but we think it's going to work Mm. so and at first when I queried it it was still a little bit too adult because with my I got an R&R for my first agent with this book and she gave me suggestions about how to lower it down to a middle grade level originally Mm. there was another adult character who was interacting with the doll maker a lot and she suggested that I excise that character entirely and I bring more of the focus on the child character Raina. And that actually really improved the book because Raina is a really a wonderful character. I have a lot of people say that she is their favorite character in this book. Yeah. So it allowed me to explore a little bit more of the child's perspective. So I did the R&R um, after querying and then I signed um, with my first agent after that R&R and she had me do one big round of revision. She said, okay, 
And after that, she's like, all right, you know, you've nailed it. It was a lot of just uh, more tweaking, mm -hmm. um, things like that. It wasn't a, a big gut job. The big gut job was the R&R. &R. Yeah. Can I uh, pause it, pause you and ask you about cutting that character? Because I've cut many characters in my time. And Haley, have you cut? Yeah, you've cut characters too. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. How was that for you? Was it? was it emotional is it difficult or did you happily write him out of the book or her out of the book I happily wrote her out of the book just because I had never really been a super attached to that character in the way that I was with Carolina or the doll maker and I decided mm -hmm. she doesn't really have a place in this story and the other thing I think when I cut characters is you know, I can always just drop this character into another story. It's not like I'm murdering them here. They can go live in another world if right. I really enjoy this character. Sure. Yeah, I do that too. I, I always like transplant ideas and characters and scenes and settings. I'm like, oh, that didn't work there. I'll just shove it in here. Maybe it'll work for here. Yeah, nothing ever exactly. dies. Do you, think, yeah. do you think about it at the time though? Or are you just like, I'm setting you aside for later? And I'll get back to you. Or are you like, okay, in order for me to feel good about cutting this character, I need to know where they'll end up eventually. <laughs> Either more, of you can answer. Yeah, it's more of the first one for me where it's like, yeah. okay, I have, I've created you. I have fleshed you out. I feel like you are in some way a compelling character. And I know that if you are meant to be in a story, eventually I will find the right story to plop you into. Mm. Gotcha. Haley, what about can you? I ask, was she, was she like a love interest for the doll maker? Cause he's such a lonely character. Yeah. She was a bit of a love interest. She was um, uh, Yosef's sister, actually, who was a bit, oh. she was a bit more grounded than the rest of the characters, which I think is why she didn't quite fit with the story where she was more of the pragmatist versus uh. all the other characters were these, you know, these artistic, um, more whimsical characters. And she mm. was the most realistic, quote unquote. Oh, wow. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Did so you have you, another question, Lizzie? Oh, I just was, I was asking you about, do you think about your characters, where they're going to go, or do you just plop them in a file and you're like, I'll find a home for you eventually. Oh, me? Um, yeah. I think I just, I just go, yeah. If it's compelling enough, whether it's like, I once tried to write this middle grade book um, that was, I wanted it to be narrated by a river. I just wanted that. And I tried to do it and it wasn't really working. Um, and, but yeah, and then like, but I didn't, so I cut, I stopped working on the book because I just couldn't get it to work. And then months later, I found myself, found myself writing another book and there happened to be a river in it. And it wasn't the narrator, but it was the same. I knew it was the same river. Um, so I don't know. I, I think I agree with Rachel. It's like, you don't, I don't necessarily decide where it's going to be, but if it's compelling enough, I trust that it will come up again. Yeah. Yeah. How about you, Lindsay? Do you have like a log of cut characters? <clears throat> oh yeah, for sure I do. And um, I, I'm the opposite actually. It's funny. I, I'm reluctant to cut them at the time uh, usually because they feel so integral to the bones of the story. And then when I do cut them, they're, I mean, they're still in my head and maybe someday I'll, I'll, you know, find a place for them. But for the most part, they all just, none of them have come back, <laughs> which is very <laughs> cutthroat of me, I guess. But I just am like, eh, he didn't work for a reason. So you guys can all just stand over there, I guess. Like I'm just thinking about Gilbert from Race to the Bottom, from of, the race to the bottom of the Sea, yeah. who's 
rest in peace, Gilbert. <laughs> I know. Well, I, if I really want to get woo woo, I think, you know, you belong in somebody else's story. Go find some other writer. Yeah. Oh, I like Maybe that that's idea. True. I like that too. Yeah. Like they get reincarnated somewhere else as, mm-hmm. as something else, which I'm sure like as readers, you guys probably have that feeling too. Sometimes when you come across characters, you think, well, this could have been so-and-so from my book or something anyway so so you're welcome all you writers who get my random <laughs> discarded characters yeah <laughs> I send them all your way um okay so you you revised with your agent and then was the next big round of revisions with your editor then it was and it was a lot of uh she wanted certain scenes fleshed out she also wanted the ending change because originally the ending was actually darker and more graphic it, Whoa! Yes, it actually followed the doll maker into the changing room, right oh, before wow. the gas chambers. Oh wow! And instead of Carolina being uh, left with the possessions in the warehouses, she was actually burned. Oh she, man! Yeah, she and then you know the the wind came her to go to you know then took her spirit back to the land of the dolls, and my editor said this is too dark yeah. for middle grade. Uh, you can figure out a do, way to do the separation scene to make it um, just as meaningful, but we can't go here in a book that's for ages eight to 12. I also wanted to ask you about the, the uh, I guess, well, I don't know anything about Polish folklore, but I assume like, I don't, how do you pronounce the, uh, the meadow spirit? Is it Lakanika? Yeah, Lakanika. Okay, yeah, like those little elements, the Lakanika, and when, when the seasons come in and you have the, um, you know, like the winter spirit and the summer spirit, and it, are those things that you took from Polish folklore and wove in, or are those things that you invented yourself? Those are all things from Polish folklore that I wove in. Um, mm. So I think that the landscape is very, if you go to Poland, it does feel, it feels both magical and haunted. So it was very easy Mm. to imagine all of these spirits also having to Mm. deal with this catastrophic war. Um, There's Mm. all these, you know, there's enormous wheat fields there. There's enormous uh, primeval forests there. And it felt like, you know, there could be magical creatures hidden in these places. Yeah, because I thought it was such a good, the way that you did it to have the Lakanika that, the, where Auschwitz was used to be her meadow mm-hmm. and that and and so in the end she's there and also yeah so she's there and she kind of carries Carolina um back to the land of the dolls um her, her soul her spirit is I thought it was such a beautiful way of doing it there was I mean the the gravity of the moment is not lost it's it's absolutely heartbreaking um but at the same time yeah it doesn't have I guess the graphic element of having Carolina actually being burnt um burnt in the oven yeah how much do you think is that okay let me form this question in my head before I just say it out loud in a mess I'm thinking about how middle grade books sort of generally end on a hopeful note Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and um, how you manage to instill that hope in this book that is so full of, you know, tragedy and and despair. And even with the, the super tragic ending, there is that feeling of hope because um, the Polish spirits are still around. Carolina's soul is not, um, 
you know, taken and ended. Um, she mm. continues on and stories continue on. Mm. Um, you know, you have all of these metaphors working to provide that sense of hope. How much of that do you think has to do with the distance in time that we have now from the Holocaust? I mean, it's, it's almost a hundred years ago. And I'm just wondering if that's something that's, do you think that's easier as a storyteller now to like impart that sense of hope for an event that, and I'm, I'm certainly not trying to um, say that there's all of this distance between us and the Holocaust, because obviously there's still huge ramifications from it and there's still survivors and it is very recent history. Um, but do you think that's easier with some distance from a historical event to, to add in that hope? Am I making any sense? Is this... You are, okay. and I think, I think you're right because essentially we know the ending of the story or the near ending of the story, that people were able to rebuild their lives, that people were able to discuss this, that at least some of the perpetrators, but not by no means all the perpetrators were brought to justice. Um, mm -hmm. Versus you know, right after the war, people had absolutely no idea what was going to happen where they were going to go, what the rest of their lives would play out as uh, versus, you know, now survivors, even if they are still uh, suffering from the trauma that they experience, they also, in, in many ways, they often feel triumphant because they did survive. Mm -hmm. They went on to have families. They went on to make art, start businesses and, um, you know, have many, many grandchildren now. So I think that it is much easier to write that versus, you know, I think it would be for example, if we were going to write a, a middle grade book about the pandemic, we don't really know exactly how this story is going to end. I think it would be harder to end it on a really hopeful note unless it's, you know, it ends the day that they found that the Pfizer vaccine had been approved, you know, right. that at least ends on a high note, but we're still in the midst of this historical event. We don't know what all the ramifications are going to be. So you mentioned that you did an R and R for your agent, and you signed with your agent. You did some revisions. Um, was it was how was being on sub? Was it a long submission process? Or I mean, you don't have to go into detail if you don't want to. But yeah, it was a weekend. It what? went on submission on Whoa. a Friday, and we got the email on a Monday. That is the fastest I have ever had this happen. Um, Holy cow. That so, is amazing. Yeah, it was, it was a whirlwind. I mean, especially since, you know, my, my agent's calling me and it's, you know, she was two hours ahead of me and it's seven o'clock in the morning. I'm like, wait, what? what? I'm confused. <laughs> it's why my phone ringing at 7am waking up the rest of the household. So that went by incredibly, incredibly fast where I didn't even have a chance to fully kind of get it in my head that this was still happening. Yeah. I just kind of stumbled into work that afternoon. Like, I, I guess I sold a book. Okay. <laughs> Dream complete. That is you're, amazing. You're like the movie version of the publishing industry that always shows up <laughs> yeah. in movies like, <laughs> yes. like Elf and like, it all just happens so fast. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Okay. And then, and then I learned how slow it can be after that. I yeah. was like, okay, I got all the really fast, easy things out yeah. of the way right away. <laughs> you get one and you yes. got it. <laughs> exactly right out of the gate, wow. which is both good and bad. It gave sure. me some unrealistic <laughs> expectations, but at the same time, right. it was really thrilling that yeah. this book was going to be out there because this book was so important to me. Uh, it's, uh, it's such a, yeah, I think it is such an important book for children to have. And it's so beautiful. Also, I was showing my husband today because like the, I've got the Walker books um, 
edition mm. um and the insides so it's the paperback but the I think the inside of the book is so beautiful like these drawings and the borders and it's just so artistic and so um actually can you talk a little bit about the design of the book and like the did you have conversations with your editor about these kind of because it looks like the paper cuttings that Raina makes um the borders kind of look like that to me so yeah do you want to talk a little bit about that Yes, in the Walker Books edition, yes, they actually, the, the, um, the silhouette art is actually based on Polish uh, folk cuttings, which is um, a, an art form there that um, both Jews and Gentiles did in the, the 19th and 20th century, these extremely elaborate paper cuts. They were also very popular throughout Europe. For example, Hans Christian Andersen would do them as a party trick when he would go to do readings uh, because people oh, were cool. just fascinated with them. <laughs> So I did have conversations with my UK editor about that. And then with my US editor, I submitted a, um, a description of each of the characters and a list of mm-hmm. artists who I felt captured the aesthetic, not actually thinking that any one of them would be designing the interior of the book and then the cover. But then um, my editor went with Lisa Perrin, who was on that list, and she has done some mm-hmm. really extraordinary covers. She's Jewish, so she really brought a lot of authenticity to the illustrations as well. Oh, cool. That's that's so so cool. That is really cool. And the other thing that's really amazing about this book is that it's sold in many languages, right? And it's, and it's just, it's very, it's been very popular. I think it even won an award in Poland, right? It did not win an award in Poland, but Uh, I did um, two years ago, actually, I, according to my Facebook memories, I left for Poland two years ago today. (laughs) I did a book tour in Krakow in (gasps) conjunction with the Krakow Library um, the uh, Krakow uh, Historical Society, where I was, I was talking to Polish school children. Uh, part I know a little bit of Polish, so I was able to communicate a little bit, but there was also a translator. So that was an absolutely fantastic experience. I did a reading at a local bookshop. I was signing. Um, mm. People were dressing. There was a lot of teenage girls there who were dressed up in Polish folk costumes. It was an absolutely oh. wonderful experience, and I was so happy when. It, it even got translated into Polish because mm. I actually thought that's the one language you won't get translated into because of the politics in Poland, because I right. do mention um, some, you know, the collaboration of individual Poles with the Nazis. And that has become mm. such a hot button issue there to the point where if you phrase it in the wrong way, you can actually get taken to court over it. So I thought, wow, no way is this wow. going to get picked up. But my publisher is very, liberal very much about speaking the truth of these events so I had some Mm. wonderful conversations with them as well about uh, the book about Polish history about uh, and Jewish history in Krakow as well. Mm. I feel like you can be sneaky in children's literature sometimes that way. (laughs) (laughs) It's just a children's book. Right. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You're getting stuff under the wire. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I love it. I want to did that all have oh, go ahead sorry Haley. no you go. Uh, I just wanted to say one last thing about it being translated into um, especially Eastern European languages and European languages um did that all happen quickly too like after you sold the book did the rights sell quite quickly or was it kind of a slow process right afterwards uh, my then agent went to the Bologna book fair And a lot of people were excited about this book because it did have an international setting. I think Mm. from my understanding, a lot of international publishers 
they're sometimes hesitant to take on U.S. books because they are so grounded in U.S. culture and perspectives. So I think my readers will not be able to relate to this story about a kid living in small town America, living with, you know, dealing with small town America issues versus mm -hmm. if you're setting it in a European city that maybe these kids have some familiarity with and also World War II in Europe, which is, you know, a large part of their education and history. That seems to be sense. very yeah. appealing to them. Makes sense. Yeah. As someone who wrote a book about Bigfoot, I can confirm this. That's a very <laughs> American. <laughs> they search for what? Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, well, I wanted to ask you um, about that time when your book sold in a weekend and the elation that you must have felt, that energy, that kind of, it's, it's something I think about a lot, the kind of energy that I had right before my first book sold, um, when everything just felt open and possible. And it was so easy to daydream about like seven figure deals and like <laughs> of the crazy things that you dream about that you think, mm -hmm. but it could be me, like, who knows? Um, and that, that energy and that like momentum that you feel, um, how do you feel about it now looking back and do you ever, harness it or, or, or do anything to like, how do you get back into that headspace of possibility? Um, now that, you know, publishing is not that quick all the time. It did take a lot of adjusting because I really, I struggled to write a second book. Um, I ended up parting ways with my first agent. I ended up parting ways with my first publisher. And part of the way I was able to re-harness that initial, even just creative energy was to just write something that I had no plan for. There was nothing under contract. Um, I knew that my then editor did not want this book. I didn't think that my then agent would want this book, but it was a story that I felt deeply compelled to tell. Mm. And that's sort of how I was able to reinvigorate myself about it. And then to balance out the hope and despair. It's like, no, I don't think anytime soon I'm going to get a seven figure deal, but I, you know, I can conceive of a life where I am publishing books and that is part of my income. And I am getting my stories out there to the people who really need them. And to stop looking for, I think, for it to be fast, the idea of fame and fortune, you know, people, their breakout novel can be their 20th novel. You never know. You just have to keep going yeah. because that's the reason why I am, you know, why I have a book coming out next year is because I kept going. I kept writing. I was determined to tell stories and writing is very valuable to me. So I think that that's something to keep in mind is why did you do it in the first place? Even before mm. you had this idea of, oh, I can make money doing this, or I want this publishing house, this editor, before you knew the ins and outs of the publication process, just to return to those very foundational reasons for wanting to tell stories. So why did yeah. you do this? What's your why? Hi. My why is that I have always been a storyteller. I have always felt compelled uh, to, tell, to make up stories with the things that are around me. And as I was saying earlier, it's also kind of how I deal with the issues in my own life is to drop them into a story, remix them. And that's how, sort of how I figure out a lot of different things. I'm always joking, writing, writing is cheaper than therapy. That's how I sort <laughs> things out in my brain. <laughs> sure, yeah. Yeah, that makes so much sense to me. And I've also, I've gone through stages because I normally write magical stories. That's just 
I don't know, I've just always felt that I have energy to do that. And whenever I try to write something more grounded or more contemporary or just more like without magic, I just can't do it because I agree with you. I think magic is such a powerful language for everything um, and for dealing with really difficult things. Like to speak about it through the lens of magic just gives me... I don't know. I don't know exactly what it is, but it just gives me a, a new perspective on it or it allows me to rearrange it in my head in a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I think it's, and you did that in such a powerful way in Dollmaker. It's just so, so beautiful. Thank you. You think that, I'm just thinking about, um, so I like grew up in very conservative Utah with a very like Christian Mormon household. Um and hearing about, uh, you know, Polish folklore and um, uh, other places around the world that have different relationships with what we call magic, then, you know, like, do you think that um, there's a particularly like American and even like white American relationship with magic that's different than other cultures and other places in the world? I think so. I think that, you know, if we're going to look at, you know, quote unquote, white American culture, it's that magic doesn't exist. Yes. Or if it does exist, it comes from the top down from this idea of a very Christian God down because even, even with Judaism and Islam and other, you know, monotheistic religions, you have access to magic in different ways. You don't always, it's not always God who is sending you the magic. You can plug into it in various uh, other ways by even um, with something like uh, Catholicism from Mexico or Cuba or Latin America, you go through the saints, you go through Mary, you never go directly through God. Right. Like you're a Catholic before converting to Judaism. And in Judaism, there's also these different ways that you can access this. Oh yeah, I'm even thinking about like, golems or golems or I don't know what the right pronunciation is in Jewish folklore that's a magic to me but it has it seems to have very little to do with religion it's just it seems like it's just like a an accessible magic on its own like you were saying you don't have to go through the rules of God and some Mm -hmm. higher you don't have to have a magic wand like Harry Potter to have access to magic in this way Yes. And it's very, it's very, um, it's pragmatic in a lot of ways, because in yeah. order to bring the gone to like Rabbi uh, Lov in uh, Prague, which is where my next book is actually said, he does, uh, he writes the name of God on um, the golem's forehead, but mm-hmm. he doesn't actually ask permission to do this. He just right. knows that this has power. Yeah. And yeah. the golem is designed to protect the Jewish community. That's why he creates it. Right. And ultimately he destroys it because he realizes that it's going to become more destructive. It's going to hurt people and any amount of protection is not worth it. So there's also an element of, uh, magic can be good or evil it is not it is at all in how people use it and that's one of the themes that is in dollmaker as well how do you use your particular gifts mm. because they are neutral yeah. in and of themselves yeah but it's yeah. how you implement them i loved the dollmaker's magic um how he has firstly the magic of being able to make these beautiful dolls and dollhouses but then also this magic that he has to be able to touch an illustration and the illustration comes to life and moves but that there are also like limitations to that because his his magic seems to be all about beauty and storytelling and of course he brings carolina to life but he also kind of 
doesn't mean to I don't know and I think I think you're I think it was really interesting actually in the beginning when you mentioned magical realism because even though this is a very folkloric book and a very fairy tale-esque book it does have that feeling of magical realism in the sense the magic isn't really controllable in in the way that it isn't like Harry Potter or um, you know like the way that Gandalf might control magic like almost like it's a kind of science this magic is really almost like the seasons and the natural world like there's a you can connect to it but also you can't control it and put it in a box and like decide what it's going to do for you right I always tend to write this magic that is kind of organic because I get actually one of the things that always frustrates me when I get an edit letter is there's always the question of how does the magic work I'm like I don't know how the magic works it just works that's why it's magic yes exactly (laughs) that's what we call anything we don't know how it works yeah it works because they believe it works because there is energy that can be harnessed around them but I don't have an exact you know D&D style explanation for why this spell works and do they need to do this that and the other thing um you know I'm not a, a stem person I can't do magic as chemistry but also it strikes me that not only is it kind of an antithesis to white maybe what we might call white American magic but also that it's it's an antithesis to masculine magic because it feels more feminine it feels more organic um yeah it just feels more like the feminine energy of magic I agree even when I tend to write male characters you know I always think about um, in addition, you know, so much of YA and a lot of middle grade is geared towards young girls. Mm. And I always think about, well, what about the boys and how can I portray different types of what it means to be a man, what it means to be a boy, to be more mm. feminine, to be more masculine, to embrace toxic, toxic masculinity like Brent mm. does, or to embrace yes. this kind of um, better um, nicer masculinity like the doll maker mm. does because he's still very much a man but sure, yeah. he does draw from creativity he is kind he yeah. is able to mm. be courageous and active but also to be gentle as well so mm. that's an interesting observation about the different types of magic well let's talk about what's next for you because you just sold a book yes. to you <laughs> publisher and like a, a really new publisher, a new imprint, right? Yes, okay. I have a book coming out next year with Peachtree Teen. Peachtree has been around for, I think, 40 or 50 years, but they've mainly been doing picture books. And recently they brought in Ashley Hearn, who was a Page Street Publishing, to be their primary YA author. And she acquired my book, The Ghosts of Rose Hill, which is my debut YA novel, and it's written in verse. So it's actually a story told in, I think about 400 poems. Wow, I didn't realize it was in verse. Yeah, it was a challenge to myself. I've always written poetry. So I said, all right, I'm going to write a novel in verse. This should be easy. Five (laughs) months later, I'm still drafting the first draft of it. Um, And it is the story of uh, Alana Lopez, who is a Cuban American Jewish girl who lives in Miami Beach, just like me. And she goes to visit her aunt um, who's living in Prague because her father is Czech and her mother is Cuban. Mm -hmm. And there she discovers an abandoned Jewish cemetery behind her aunt's house. And she decides to uh, maintain it. She decides to restore it a little bit. And she encounters the ghost of a boy named Benjamin there. And she realizes um, that she becomes kind of entangled with him and that there is this dark magic that is binding him to this city that is also like Krakow. It is full of myths and stories. 
Well, I, I was lucky enough to read an early version of this book and it is really? so, so beautiful. <laughs> you, you're going to love it, Lindsay. You're going to love it. It's, it's mm. absolutely gorgeous. And like, unlike anything I've ever re- read, I was about to say written, unlike <laughs> anything I've ever read. Um, and I love that it's like magical and in verse because a lot of verse novels, they tend to be more contemporary mm-hmm. and more kind of exploring the emotional landscape of, you know, someone who's just finishing high school or someone who's going through, you know, a particular issue. And I love the magic in it. It's just like completely, oh, it's just so, so beautiful. I'm at a loss for words. Thank you I kind of refer to it as it's if you like the movie spirited away but wanted it to be jewish that's sort of what this book is oh i totally i can picture exactly what that would be like ah that's great it's based on a lot of um real experiences i've had in jewish cemeteries because you know pre-covid every summer i would go to maintain jewish cemeteries in poland because the jewish communities there they do exist but they're very small and they often don't have the resources to maintain the hundreds and hundreds of cemeteries that are still oh, there wow. I so i i drew from this experience of even if you don't believe in ghosts in the you know real casper sense of the word europe often feels very haunted by the mm-hmm. past and it really comes to the surface in these cemeteries because one the absence of the community to maintain them and two a lot of them were desecrated during the war so mm-hmm. you can see bullet holes in the tombstones and things like this where they were used mm-hmm. as target practice or they were used to pave roads and then return to the cemeteries mm-hmm. so that's where wow. the idea of the ghost actually came from is okay what if europe is literally haunted by some of these um events I love that. I love, I love the idea of the cemetery itself being haunted by its own past that way. Mm. Oh, that's fascinating. And can I also just ask, this is a question that will also relate to Dollmaker about research and all the folklore that is in the stuff that you write. Cause I've read a couple of your manuscripts or a few of them and they all have kind of historical elements and then well the the idea that the the past kind of haunts us and then also this like magical folklore um and so is that something that you're just constantly kind of reading about or do you do like very specific deep dive research when you decide I want to write about Prague or I want to write about you know this particular kind of folklore with a lot of the things that I write, I usually have to go to a place in order to actually write about it. Um, you know, obviously I went to Krakow and then four years ago, I took my little sister to Prague and I was just absolutely enchanted with that city as well. So I thought one day I'm going to write a book set here. So then I started to do the research once I started writing the book, when I realized this is the information that I need to know in order to make this time and place come to life. And uh, with the Ghost of Rose Hill, the story basically had no plot. It was a scenario that I had written for my old editor that was just a girl goes to Prague to stay with her aunt and encounters a ghost. And that was it. There was no actual plot, but the plot came in when I was on the uh, Folklore Thursday tag on Twitter. I'm no longer on Twitter, but I do miss that hashtag. And there was a story about a river spirit in Prague. And I went, oh, that's the plot. You just gave me my villain. Thank you. (laughs) Good old Twitter. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, yeah, because it seems to be like a general interest in your life that you just you love folklore. So I imagine you're always kind of like reading different tales and then also keeping an eye out. 
you know, for things. Because I think I encounter uh, younger writers or not necessarily young in age or people who are maybe trying to write for the first time and they struggle with like, well, how do I know if I have a good idea or how do I find ideas for books? And and I think that, yeah, part of it is like keeping your eyes open for things like that. Like just reading about things that you're interested in and keeping your eyes out for like little nuggets that you can be like, oh, if I add this to this, then it could be this. Yes, always yeah. be a magpie. Anything that's shiny, you never know when you can drop it into a manuscript and it will enhance it. Also things like fairy tale and folklore. Um, I was at a, um, a convention a couple of years ago and Catherine M. Valente, who wrote The Girl Who Circumnavigated mm-hmm. Fairyland and Deathless, she made this really great post. She said, fairy tales are in the public domain. Yeah. You can rewrite yeah. them as much as you want. You can just steal from them entirely. So that's yeah. uh, advice I always give is look at the stories that you grew up with. What different things could you do? And even with fairy tales, you know, we all know the main ones, you know, Cinderella, Snow White, Hansel and Gretel. There's a lot of really weird, obscure ones, even in the Brothers Grimm, whether that's Godfather Death or the Girl Without Hands or, you know, look into the ones that we haven't uh, beaten to death and that Disney hasn't <laughs> made a musical out of yet for inspiration. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> so true. So we're going to ask you, um, we're, we're going to repeat a piece of oft given writing advice and have you react verbally okay. and emotionally in real time and tell us if you think it's true or not true, or if it's just tell us what you think as a writer about this advice. So the, the piece of writing advice that I want you to react to is that you must suffer for your art. And I don't think that's true in that if you are in a really bad mental state, I think that it can be helpful to exercise that with writing, with art, but that's a very raw product and it can, it can help you process things, but that is never going to be what makes it onto the page because in a lot of ways, it's going to be too emotional. It's mm-hmm. going to be too upsetting. It's not going to be somebody, something that somebody wants to read to crawl into your head when you're in such a dark place. I think that writing also comes from joy. It comes from the things that we love. Even if you're upset about something, usually it's because you care about something. And I do think that in a way we write because we have hardships in our life that we want to, in some ways, make them easier for other people to deal with. If we experience something difficult, we want to pass on what we learned from that experience in some way. Mm-hmm. I think if you have this wonderful, happy life, I don't think that you, if you have experienced absolutely no suffering and everything has gone really swimmingly, you might not feel compelled to create in the same way. <laughs> yeah. That um, You shouldn't you go have... out and find some suffering. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, think that, I think that creating can be a very difficult process because it does force you to examine really um, unsettling things that have happened to you, unsettling things that are happening in the world, regardless of what genre that you are writing. But yeah. yeah, I don't think that you need to sit around and be miserable in order to create art. I think you have to go out and have interesting experiences. Yeah. And, mm. uh, you know, you have to, you do have to look at sort of the things that have happened to you and what can I pass on from these experiences, these hardships that I have gone through. Yeah. Mm. Were there points when writing Dollmaker that were joyful to you, even though it was difficult subject matter? Was it, would you say it was a, a pretty joyful creation? 
I think it was, you know, there were obviously parts that were very dark when I knew that the characters were, they were going to lose in a lot of ways. They were not going to make it out of this situation alive, but these moments when they were, they did feel hopeful that they felt like we can make a difference. That mm -hmm. energy kind of carried over into what I was doing. And even in the ending that no one is destroyed, they go on to something else their memory lives on, their memory inspires others and that what they did and the sacrifices that they made mattered. And that made it not a crushing, depressing ending where everyone is just dead and nothing that they did mattered, knowing that what they did mattered really um, allowed that to be a better um, writing experience than if I, I had written kind of, you know, the downer ending where mm -hmm. Carolina ceases to exist, the dollmaker ceases to exist. They do continue on in some fashion, whether that is as souls in some capacity or the memory of Raina or even Raina's survival that yeah. she survived because of the love of these people. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that was such an important part that she did survive. And the the scene where Carolina sees her at the end looking into the dollmaker's shop, returning to it. Yeah. And she she knows that she's safe. And that of course so much has been lost um, that will never be kind of regained that Rena will never she'll never have her sense of I guess being safe in the world again maybe um or at least that that that's been affected in a very deep way but the fact that she is that she's alive is so so important yeah and I think that yeah I think that as creative people when we see a darkness in the world we do want to reshape it yeah, something a little bit brighter. I think that that's a natural impulse of creative people is I see something broken. I want to mm -hmm. fix it in some way. Hmm. Yeah. 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 Even if it's only so in a story, even if I can't do it in real life. And I mean, I think I'm going to ask you this, but I think I really kind of know the answer. Do you believe that? I guess that nothing really ever dies and that everything kind of goes on in some shape and form and that if what we do in this life matters, even if we do quote-unquote lose at something I absolutely believe that I mean one of the, mm -hmm. the first laws of physics that is matter cannot be destroyed it always just takes a completely different shape you know I work yeah. in cemeteries I get to see you know these things that have you know been resurrected in some form that mm -hmm. even if you just believe that there is you know no soul no afterlife no consciousness what you are still continues on in memory in flowers, in trees, in the impacts that you have made, you don't even realize in everyday life. You never know when being kind actually really helped someone out, maybe even saved them on one day. Yeah. 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 I totally believe that too. Me too. Mm -hmm. Even this mm -hmm. heathen over here believes it. <laughs> <laughs> this cynic and heathen. Um, I love it. Well, is there anything else that we should know? about the story of this book. I just thought I'm really grateful that it has, it has reached so many people. I'm really, yeah. really amazed that it did this thing that yeah. I wrote on a bathroom floor. Yeah, Amazing. in a lawn that's, chair in the bathroom. Yeah. visual. <laughs> Anytime anyone's like, writing is a glamorous job, I'm gonna tell them that story. Exactly, it's like, no, believe me, I have written some very strange places in my life. <laughs> same and I I love that whole writing glamour idea because literally half the time I'm writing I'm in pajamas unshowered mm -hmm. my hair sticking up in all sorts of directions and like it's not glamorous it just isn't it's really not nice. yeah. 
My kids are usually <laughs> fighting in the background while I'm trying to. <laughs> right. Clementine was singing Mamma Mia on repeat yesterday at the top of her lungs while I was trying to write. And I, that is exactly what I thought. Like, oh, the glamorous life. <laughs> Feel <laughs> moments where you can. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much, Rachel. It's been amazing having you here talking about the, about the Dolmaker of Krakow. And I loved rereading it. I love this book. I'm so like happy to own it and have it in, on my shelf because I think it's just such an important book, such an important middle grade book. Um, yeah, it's just such an honor to chat to you about it. Thanks for coming. Yes, thank you so much for inviting me. This has been a wonderful conversation. <laughs> cool. Oh you loved it. It was great. Thank you so much for listening to Story of the Book. If you like this episode, please share it with a friend. Or give us a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. Until next time, stay safe and keep writing. Bye! Bye. <laughs>